Let's pretend that this isn't advice. And I'm Erin, and I'm not giving you advice. It's it's not advice. I can't help myself <laughs> give advice. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I want you to be able to live your life, but I know how to do it. I'm a huge know-it-all, and this is where I practice not giving advice to people. Except I totally give advice to them. I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. Hey, on today's episode of This Is Not Advice, I have Dr. Emily Bonestall-Postel, She is a sociologist and advocate uh, who works in the victim's rights space. I cannot tell you how amazing this conversation was. Well, you'll hear it. Um, I learned so much from Dr. Postel. I learned about why we need to pay attention to victim's rights. You know, I think all of you know I'm a fairly liberal person and – Um, One of the things that I just didn't think about in my daily life was what it's like to be a victim in the justice system. And what I took away from this is how, how many times we as a society make people feel unseen and how dangerous and traumatic and damaging that is. And we're doing it systemically and systematically, and um, it doesn't need to be that way. So I think that you'll get a lot out of this conversation. Maybe you'll get a lot for yourself. Maybe you'll hear something in it for yourself about how you can be for other people in your life. Maybe you'll hear something in it for you about how you've been treated, and it'll be healing. Fair warning trigger warning. Um, we do talk about violence. We do talk about being victimized. Um, we do talk about being a victim of things. I don't know how to speak about this. I just want to let you know that in this conversation, we don't, it's not just, uh, cupcakes and kittens. Um, and there's, I think a lot of value for you. Hi, Dr. Bonestell Postel, Emily for the rest of the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. Um, Please tell people who you are. (laughs) Sure. So, uh, you know, it's funny. I was listening to your podcast um, last night, actually. And, you know, I noticed you obviously start every podcast by saying, who are you? Um, And one of the things that's super interesting, I think, is that women are more likely to answer that question relationally. So in terms of mm-hmm. their roles in society or how they're related to other people. So um, I'll start there. So I'm a, a mom to an almost three-year-old. Um, I'm a wife, a daughter, a sister. Uh, I'm a homicide survivor, which means I lost a family member to murder. Um, so I have a PhD in sociology. My expertise is in the area of victimization. Um I'm the state director of Marcy's Law, which allows me to help create transformative change for crime victims. So that's who who I am in terms of kind of the roles that I have. But um, you know, if you take all of that away, kind of what what's left at my very core, I would say who I am is a change maker um, driven by passionate purpose. I love that. First of all, 
That's one of the smartest answers. Nice, nice picking up on what I tease out of people (laughs) in each and every episode. (laughs) I went to I went to grad school. I did my homework before I before I took this. Well, we have so much to talk about. First of all, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Um, It sounds like that might have been a transformative experience for you. It was very much so. Yeah. Do you mind sharing, like share whatever you're willing to share? Sure. Um, And I'll start just by saying for your listeners, uh, what's called a trigger warning. So um, throughout my story and my journey, I, I talk about crime victims. So I talk about victimization and, and homicide and the impact that that has on people. So um, just kind of a heads up to your listeners that that's going to be part of the, the conversation today. Um, these are kind of my general dinner table conversations, but I know that they are not everyone else's general dinner table conversations. Um, mm-hmm. So I just like to, to kind of give that, that warning. Um, so in 2005, my cousin Lindsay was um, at the University of Delaware and someone broke into her apartment and she was raped and murdered. Um, and I was a senior in high school and it absolutely rocked my world. Um, just not only the the grief and the loss of someone who I loved so deeply, but also in the way that it happened. Um, and it, it just completely shattered my sense of the world as being a place that was safe and that I had any kind of control or agency over my life and my future. And, um, and I just, I kind of, I left for college and wasn't sure what I was going to do. Nothing felt good enough or right enough. Um, and I had a lot of survivor's guilt about kind of what I was going to decide to do with my life, knowing that Lindsay wasn't going to be able to make those choices. Um, and so I was actually undeclared as a major, I bounced around a whole bunch of different times. Um, cause I just, nothing, nothing seemed to, to kind of align with what I needed it to be. And so, um, I took a sociology class, actually it was a philosophy of women class. And, um, I learned about this idea of secondary victimization that mm. even if you are not the person who has been directly victimized, that you absolutely can still have the same kinds of impact of PTSD and survivor's guilt and all these kinds of things. And it was so validating for me to see that I was not just like this, you know, person who had kind of gone off the deep end with, with being as scared as I was and feeling as out of control as I was. Um, and it was really validating. And so at that point, I realized that how I could make a difference and what seemed right to me was to be able to do that for other people. So, um, so that's, that's kind of what led me to thinking about where I was going to go and what my, what my career was going to look like. So that's a, that's a lot for an 18 year old to take on. Yeah. How did you take care of yourself at that time? Or did you? So I think honestly, the, the way that I took care of myself up until that class was just kind of burying my head in the sand, um, kind of, you know, putting it out of my brain is like, that was such a statistical anomaly. And we know that we know that, that what happened to Lindsay was statistically not the way that most people are experienced crime victimization, but it still happened. Right. It's, and, and it happened in my family and, um, and so I think just kind of burying my head in the sand as much as I could was sort of the approach that I took 
because it was what I needed to do at that time. Right. Um, and as a, as somebody who specializes in trauma informed approaches and victim centered approaches, you know, the way that your brain and your body protect you in the times that it does, that that's the right thing for you at that time. Right. And so, um, I think that was probably it. I just jumped into, you know, my schoolwork and I was involved in like 5,000 different organizations and, um, you know, that's, that's kind of who I am anyway, but definitely just kept myself and my brain busy that way. Um, and then once I took this class and started learning about this kind of stuff, you know, you have to, you have to process things differently at that point. Yeah. It's almost like you got to give your heart enough time to catch up to. And your brain, right? I mean, I was Mm -hmm. 18. It, It was, it was just a totally I was very privileged. I I have lived a very privileged life. I didn't grow up in a community where violence like this is the norm. Um, That may not be true for all of your listeners. And so, you know, something like this, even though it is still incredibly traumatic, um, may not have been as shocking to some folks. It was very shocking to me. Um, And so that's where, you know, it it really, it really shattered kind of my understanding of of the world as I knew it. Um, Just as a kind of interesting side note, this is something that I think a lot of folks in the last almost two years have started to feel, right? That when when the pandemic hit and the world as we knew it was over and the world, you know, last week is no longer the world that we live in and everybody feels dangerous to you and you feel like you can't keep your family safe and you feel out of control and all of that kind of stuff. That's, that's what it's like to experience crime. Um, Mm -hmm. so in some ways, you know, we've been kind of going through this collectively as a society. Um, and that's something that, you know, those of us who have been through this have, have had to walk that path before. You know, I think that's an interesting point. I've been saying to people, like we've been experiencing this massive collective long-term trauma and everyone deals with it differently. Everyone copes differently. Everyone experience, we're experiencing the same thing and we are all having very different experiences of the same thing. Absolutely. And that's exactly how it is for, for crime victims as well. There is no, there is no normal or common reaction. There are common reactions. There's no right reaction. There's no mm-hmm. one way of, of coping or dealing, um, you know, what we think somebody should do or, or how they should act after they've experienced something is, is not at all a fair assumption of, of, to put on folks. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, I, I'm hopeful that one of the things, you know, one of the positive things that will come out of the pandemic, um, is that people will have a little bit more patience and understanding and, and compassion toward folks who go through different kinds of traumas and, and giving people the space to experience it and heal and grow and, you know, whatever that looks like for them, um, in the ways that are right for them at that time. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting, there, there is one difference between the pandemic and what you have experienced, which is the, the crime aspect of it, the, the having it being done to by somebody else. Yeah. Um, and you know, I have a law degree and I think for those of you that are listening, just, can you give a little bit of your, that one sociology class took you down a massive road. Can you just like, <laughs> yes. Give a quick overview of your, the road that you took and sure. then we can so, talk a little pettily about the nerd stuff. So, um, so 
one of the things that I always encourage my students when I was, when I was teaching, I would always encourage my students to think about, um, really how it, it's healthy, most healthy for you to, to pursue this work. So if you want to pursue this work, you feel passionate about it. Um, you know, a lot of people think like, okay, I'm going to be a counselor. I'm going to, you know, be a rape crisis advocate. Um, for me, I knew that, that kind of that frontline work was going to be too close, that I, that was not something that I was going to be able to do. I needed to have a little bit more kind of distance and space there. Um, and I have always been really good at school. And so I thought, you know what, why don't I go and, and, you know, become an educator. So I went to, uh, graduate school and I got my master's and my PhD and, um, you know, my area of research and expertise is in crime victimization in general, um, looking at the impact of victimization on victims, their families, communities, looking at, uh, you know, the, what the process and, and the experience looks like to go through the criminal justice system, all that kind of stuff. So after I graduated with my PhD, I came to um, Kentucky and I was at the University of Kentucky in a postdoc working at the Center for Research on Violence Against Women and teaching in the sociology department. Um, and it was amazing. It was amazing. I created a class called victimology and I taught family violence and my students were incredible and we did all kinds of, you know, amazing community campus events. It was just, it was amazing. Um, and then my postdoc ended and, um, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do next. And maybe two or three months later, I got a call that said, would you be willing to have a conversation about, um, possibly joining the Marcy's Law for Kentucky team? And I, I kind of laughed because it, it's a Marcy's Law is an organization that, um, that campaigns for and, and helps to create constitutional change. And so basically to, to get constitutionally protected rights for crime victims, this role would be operating in the political space. And I didn't know any, I don't know anything about politics. I'm an educator, right? I'm a, I'm a researcher. I'm a, um, I'm a teacher that is like, so I didn't even know how a, a bill becomes a law. Right. I mean, I was like listening back to that, whatever that, that's schoolhouse rock. Yeah, schoolhouse rock. And so, you know, I was like, hey, this is amazing. And I I te- I would teach about Marcy's Law in my classes and I would teach about um, you know, the need for constitutionally protected rights. But I'm like, I I don't think I'm the right person for you all because I don't know I don't know anything about that. And, you know, they pushed back and said, just just have a conversation. Um, and it turns out that I I was the right person. And so I said yes. Um and I was surrounded by a team of really smart people who taught me the things I didn't know and then kind of let me let me take the lead on the things that I did. And so I, I was able to go out into the community and, um, you know, just do it. Gosh, it's been an incredible experience and something that I, I never, ever would have thought even three years ago, never would have thought that I would have been here. So my journey is um, really starts starts and and ends in you know, most, most ways in my life with Lindsay. Yeah, it sounds like it. (laughs) So just for people who don't know, can you explain a little bit about what Marcy's law actually does or is like the mechanics of it? Sure. So, um, so Marcy's law is an organization that, um, helps it's a national organization that helps different States, um, to pass constitutional amendments, so that crime victims in those states will have constitutionally protected rights. Um, so 
when I started with Marcy's Law for Kentucky team, we were one of only 16 states that did not provide and protect rights for crime victims at the constitutional level. Um, and so it's basically the the organization, you know, provides the help and the support to be able to um, make that happen. And it's it's incredible. Um, and we we were on the ballot both in 2018 and then in 2020, and we passed in in 2020. And crime victims in my state now have constitutionally protected rights that are meaningful and enforceable and help not only in the pursuit of justice, but also of healing. So just can I, um, I actually don't know a lot about this. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, is there, are there different levels for different kinds of crimes? What are some of the rights that you uh, elucidate for crime victims? Like I can imagine how a domestic violence victim would need a ton more protection than let's say a victim of um, a car break-in. So, so Marcy's law rights are um, largely, if you think about them in kind of like procedural rights in the criminal justice system and through the process. So the right to be informed, the right to be notified that a hearing is happening, the right to be present at that hearing or to be heard, Mm -hmm. um, the right to consult with, with the prosecutor or, you know, the Commonwealth's attorney, um, the right to be treated with respect and dignity for us here in Kentucky, we now have the right to assert our rights. So, um, what is, what is really interesting to me, given that this is the world that I live in is, is how surprising it is for the general public to know that we don't have those rights protected at the constitutional level. So when I would, when I would talk with, um, with folks, you know, prior to the election, I would, you know, I would explain that we had to have this constitutional amendment in order to make it so that victims could be present at, at the trial. People were like, what do you mean? Every Olivia Benson sits next to the victim in in every episode of Law. <laughs> yeah, that's not real, right? Not not for us in Kentucky, at least. Um, mm. And so, a big part of you know, I guess what what I do across all roles of my life um, is I, I really see myself as an educator because that's at the heart of it. It's once once people know more. Um, we want to do more, right? Once, once you know better, you do better. And so that's, that's really what, to me, what, what my role with Marcy's Law has been about is helping people understand what the process looks like and how awful the criminal justice system is for crime victims. Um, and that's goes against everything that we think and, you know, our expectations that we have as a society, that the system is there to protect you and it's there to get justice. Um, and that's, it's not really how it, tends to operate in real life. And so um, Marcy's law rights are, are procedural in nature, but they, by elevating them to the constitution, um, they have the same equal footing that defendants' rights have. And so when you just have rights in, uh, in statute, defendants' rights will always trump um, victims' rights. So it's not that constitutionally protected rights for victims, you know, that they then trump defendants' rights. It's just that they both have to be equally considered. Yeah. Well, I think it's an interesting point to consider, like, how many people need to be considered. 
and what the system actually does. And what I'm hearing you talking about is not necessarily, um, like is the system for or against one person or another? It's like, who can, who do we need to protect and, and how do we protect them? Yeah. And you know, the thing that is, that is problematic, um, about the system, there's a lot of things problematic about the system. One of the things that's problematic about the system um, is is that it's it's not upheld equally and fairly, right? And so, one of the things that came up all the time, um, comes up all the time in my work as I talk to victims, is you know really kind of the luck of the draw of which prosecutor you get and which victim advocate you get and which judge you get and you know. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that whether or not you get, you know, this prosecutor, that prosecutor, then you get notified about a hearing or that you, you know, are given the chance to be present or to be heard. It should be that those are rights that are upheld consistently and fairly for all victims. And so when when we think about, um, you know, change making, when we think about making a difference and what that looks like, you know, you can do that from kind of a micro level approach. And I would say that's definitely the approach that I took in my teaching. Um, you know, the, the change that you can see in students from the start of the semester to the end of the semester is just absolutely incredible. Um, it's incredible. And, and certainly those, you know, 75 students will then go out and they will, you know, there will be this ripple effect. Um, but when you, when you approach system issues like this from a micro or individual approach, the idea of like training for prosecutors or train, you know, we're going to train all these people individually. Um, that's good and it's necessary and it's needed. But at the same time, also approaching it from a more macro systemic level is is critical, too. So by making it so that everybody has these rights. In our country, we care about constitutionally protected rights. Right? We, up, we, we do what we, we need do. to do. We, we do care about we those do things. Care about them. Yeah. <laughs> and so by by elevating them to the constitution, you sort of reset that bar. Um, and whether or not you get a prosecutor to buy in or you get, you know, the system, whoever that system actor is to, you know, really believe in their heart of hearts that it's important for this to happen. Um, when you take a systems change approach, it doesn't matter about that individual person because it, it has to happen. It's, it's now part of the system shift. Well, and you're talking about state by state constitutions. You're not talking about the federal constitution, mm-hmm. which for my non-lawyers, this actually matters, right? Because there are federally con- federally protected constitutional rights. There are state protected constitutional rights. There are state laws. There are federal laws. Like it matters how you're being prosecuted, at which level you're being prosecuted, who, which system you're in. And Absolutely. that's the micro macro level too that you're talking about, which mm-hmm. is massive. Mm-hmm. Are you going for the federal level? Is Marcy's Law aiming to? The I not right now. That's not. I have no idea. That's not. <laughs> that's not an answer I can give you. Um, I know that it's it's something that I personally would love to see happen. And if and when that day comes, I'll be I'll be right there, you know, marching along to make it happen. But um, there's, you know, what what you mentioned about kind of the different jurisdictions in a way, right? If you think about it that way, what is amazing to me when you think about kind of the luck of the draw, as I said, if 
prior to Marcy's law passing here in Kentucky, if if I was a crime victim 20 minutes across the border in Ohio, I'd have constitutionally protected rights. If that happens to me in Kentucky, I would not have had constitutionally protected rights. Um, that is one of the things that's so hard about the work of, you know, really working with victims in general is that there isn't anything that's kind of consistent state by state. Um, Marcy's law rights are generally you know, constitutional rights. So Marcy's law um, has been around since 2008. Constitutional rights have been around, um, you know, for 30 years. So generally speaking, you know, they kind of largely follow a lot of the same things, but um, but they're different state by state because the needs of each state are different. And so it, it's not like it's kind of a cookie cutter thing right across the board. But generally speaking, things like the right to be informed and to be notified and to be heard and to be treated with respect and dignity, um, those kinds of things are consistent. So it, it would be amazing if that sort of consistency could just happen at the federal level. And then the states that don't have it would be able to, you know, to have that happen that way instead of kind of in the individual state by state fight. Well, this is just like a total aside, but does Michigan have constitu- constitutionally protected victims' rights? I believe so. I'd have to look at my map. I just wondered because I was thinking about the Larry Nasser case and all of the victim impact statements that went into that sentencing. And the, I'm pretty sure that was a plea agreement, right? That wouldn't happen without constitutionally protected rights. Those victim impact statements probably wouldn't have been read aloud in court if those protections weren't there. Is that the kind of thing that you're pointing to? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, in some cases, um, a a judge may have the discretion to allow that to happen, whether or not they have constitutional rights, but they wouldn't have to let that happen if, Mm. if you didn't. And if you wanted to, you know, in Kentucky, one of the things that we really ran into often is, um, you know, victims have had the right, the statutory right to, um, to a victim impact statement, but whether or not the judge would allow them to read it out loud um, was was really up to that judge. And so, you know, sometimes you'd have survivors who were that was really, really necessary for their healing and and kind of regaining a sense of power and control for them to be able to speak that and have their voice heard, um, and then just to have the judge say, "Okay, you know, give me your piece of paper. I'll put it in in the folder." You know, it it. it just absolutely is violating all over again. Um, right. And so you might have a judge who says, absolutely, you know, the floor is yours. Um, and you might not. And so that's where, you know, kind of the consistency is, is, is there. Um, so it, it's interesting. I was listening to the the episode that you did um, where you were interviewed and you talked about the class action piece of it mm-hmm. as, as making change. Um, and that the coaching is, is kind of the more direct individual change. And that's, that's absolutely kind of how I would say that I see my experiences with both teaching and then now doing this kind of systemic work. There's, there's a need for both. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. they feel, at least for me, they fill my cup in different ways. Well, I think, you know, when we talk about things that are important to us, we, I think all of us want to be able to, to like, to use the, the metaphor of a swimming pool, like, uh, do a cannonball and like make the huge splash. And at the same time, there's a lot of beauty in the, you know, the pike dive that makes the very perfect no splash thing. Absolutely. And it still has that ripple effect underneath and, you know, people imitate it and want to be that way and 
go out into the world and are that way for other people. Absolutely. Um, now that you've made some like constitutional macro change and you've made some micro change, what do you see for yourself over the next 10 years? Like what's your mission? You know, I think the best way I can answer that is that I have no idea and, and I'm okay with that at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, my training and my education as a PhD student, you know, set forth a, a specific track. So you graduate, same, same thing with law school, right? You graduate and then, um, you know, you get a, either a postdoc or you go right into being an assistant professor and, you know, you go out for tenure and then you get tenured and then you're full professor. And then that's, that's the gig, right? That's, that's what you do. That's the path. Um, and I, I was always, you know, I was on that path and then I'd be like, Ooh, what's over here. Right. I'm being called to, to do something over here or I feel, uh -huh. feel compelled um, I feel like I, I can make a difference here. And so I would kind of, my path would sort of like weave, right. I would always come back to the path, but I would, I would like spend a little bit of time over here. Um, and I carried a lot of shame, I guess I'd say that, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't always greeted with excitement, uh, by the system and by the path and, and, you know, by, by mentors and things like that, because that's not the path. Right. Um, there's, there's path referees. They're trying to keep you on the path. Yeah. <laughs> like, why are you going there? Right. Well, and, and that's exactly right. The, you know, the, the way that that's kind of, I don't know, attached to judgments about you and whether you're, you know, you're not focused or you're it's just all kinds of ludicrous things um, that I think really stifled. I mean, don't get me wrong. I did them anyway. Um, but I think really stifled kind of my excitement and, and well, that's not probably actually true either. I'm a very excitable person, but you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but I, I still carried some of that, like, you know, the, the judgment, self, whether it's self-judgment or not, um, kind of the expectations well, you, that people had put on me. Yeah. You police yourself. You're like, oh, what are people going to think? Right. Oh, what are people going to perceive about this? Is this going to really, excuse my language, fuck things up for yeah. me? Yeah. Well, and then too, I, I found that I was saying yes to things that I, I that didn't excite me and that I didn't want to do mm. and weren't a good use of my time or or skills or talents because I, I should, right? Because that's oh. that's what I needed to do in order to, to progress on this path. Um, and so I think this it, which is why I kind of laughed about, you know, when, when they contacted me about this position, because I'm like, you should have heard some of these conversations. I'm like, well, what, what am I, what if this closes the door for me for, you know, this is so out far outside of, of my, you know, traditional path that I really, I really worried about what that would do. And, and I remember saying to my husband, you know, what happens if this closes the door for me on with academia? And he said, "Em, you are so focused on that one door that might close that you can't even see all of the other doors that this might open for you. And if it closes that one door, lock it and walk away, right? Like, screw it. If that's not something that is met with, you know, with value and expertise and, you know, something that, that the Academy would want, then, you know, is that really a place that you want to be? Um, and I was kind of like, oh, okay, that's, a, you know, that's like on an inspirational poster somewhere. Um, <laughs> but it's so true. I mean, it's, it's so true. The, the, oh my gosh, what, what my life looks like now and 
the experiences I have and the networks I have and the opportunities I've had are just things that I never, ever could have even imagined. So that's my very long answer to your question of where will I be in 10 years? I have no idea. And I'm, I'm actually okay with that right now. Yeah. Are there like, you've, you've accomplished so much in the victim's right, in the victim's right space. Are there other things that you want to accomplish? Do you want to expand beyond victim's rights? Like, I think I'm looking at, are there more things that you want to achieve? Do you not know? Yeah. So, um, so now that we have victims' rights, um, kind of the next part of it is implementing them, um, making sure that they are happening <laughs> and when they're not <laughs> happening, um, you know, making sure that they're enforced. So I'm still here on the ground in Kentucky working every day, you know, across the state to both help with that implementation and, and you know, helping folks kind of understand what this means and what this looks like because it's new, right? It's, it's a cultural shift. Um, so a lot of it's still kind of the education and then mm-hmm. also working with with victims and, and, um, you know, folks to help kind of assert those rights. So there's still quite a, a bit of work to be done here. Um, but, you know, I just went to a, a national conference on victims' rights laws and that was really energizing. It was folks from all across the country in all different kinds of capacities. Um, but all, all who cared and worked in some realm with victims' rights. And, um, and that was cool. And I met a lot of, you know, a lot of new connections and, and possible collaborations. And so I don't see myself ever leaving. This is kind of my red thread, right? I don't, I don't really see myself ever giving up this fully. Um, but certainly, you know, kind of, again, I'm, I'm doing this hand motion where my, my path is, is crisscrossing. Um, I don't know. I'm curious. What do you, what do you think the point of the justice system is? Why do we have justice? Oh, what is justice? That's my favorite question. Um, that's a long one. So what's the point of it? Um, and, and what is justice and, I mean, I can give you kind of the historical answer of, of why we have the justice. No, I want your answer. Like, I want – look, there's enough lawyers that listen to this where, you know, we could get into the nerding of why mm-hmm. would we from a historical standpoint. Don't care. <laughs> I want to talk about, like, why – like, what what justice means to you and what why it's important to you. Because I can tell you why why it would be important to me. Mm-hmm. So why it's important to me, um, and I think why I, I see justice way more holistically than I think a lot of people do, um, to me, justice is not just a, a guilty verdict. It's not a, a guilty verdict and a certain amount of time um, or a certain sentence. It's justice is about making that victim whole again, right? And so they will never go back to being the same person that they were before, Um but they don't have to feel as, as broken. Um, and mm-hmm. after you experience victimization, it's so common, you know, to feel a loss of control. Um, that's, that's one of the main things. And then the justice system is just totally exacerbates that because victims have no control in the system. Um, and so for me, justice is about helping, helping with that. Um, and that's where being seen and being validated and being heard and being able to, to regain a sense of control um, and, and therefore a sense of safety in some ways as well. That's 
that's justice to me, being able to help somebody walk through this world again with, with a little more faith that it's not the shitty space that it feels like, you know, after, after something like this happened. So, um, what I, what I love about the work that I do is that it's, it's not at all about an outcome at all. And the, the training that I gave at the national conference two weeks ago, um, was about that. And so I, I, you know, myself and a, and a colleague gave this presentation where we walked folks through, like, if, if you're treated with respect and dignity, and we gave some specific examples throughout the way that that can be just as important in this sense of justice as an outcome. Um, and, and this is, you know, certainly clear in the research. Um, but we used some specific examples from victims in, in our state here to, to help, you know, show what that looks like. But at the same time, you can have the outcome that society says is justice, you know, a guilty verdict or, or, you know, a certain number of, of years in prison or whatever that looks like. And if, for example, your voice is not heard, if what was really, really mattered for you to feel like you can move forward, to feel like you can regain that, you know, healing and justice is to have your voice heard by saying your victim impact statement. It doesn't matter what, does that make sense? And so to me, justice is a much more holistic kind of idea and approach to things. Um, and mm-hmm. justice also, there's certainly the, the piece of this that's systemic as well. Um, and so, you know, I think that's why I've, I'm so passionate about the work I'm doing right now is that it helps to create that kind of generally a- across the board. Well, I'm always, first of all, just to own it, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a left-leaning person. So like, Technically, I probably lean more towards defendants' rights than I would towards like a prosecutorial, let's get them in jail. And I'm not necessarily like arguing with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to put that on the table. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is an aspect of our justice system that really exacerbates the idea of hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. And... I am curious what your take is on like that. It's a, it's a really, really good point. And I'm glad you asked it. So um, I want to start just by saying that, that defendants rights and victims rights are not, they're not in. Yeah. I hear that. Right. You don't hold them as oppositional. You don't hold them as like. To do something for victims is not to do something against defendants, right? Or, or to take away from defendants. Um, and right. so I think that's really, as a, a sociologist who is educated in a, a crim program, um, I, I am, and as really anybody in our society, I would hope, defendants' rights, absolutely. There's there's nothing about me or the work that I do that, um, that takes away from that. And actually from a, a kind of a personal side of it, our family went through um, the justice system and we had a, a first murder trial and he was found guilty and, um, sentenced to, uh, to the death penalty in Delaware. And, um, and then he was granted a second trial because of, um, because of, of his constitutional right as a defendant. And so if I believed, so we went through a whole second trial, um, there was no new evidence, but because we, we care about, and we protect constitution, constitutional rights, um, that was granted for him. And so mm-hmm. we went through that again. And, and so if I thought at all 
that constitutionally protected rights for victims would do anything to undermine constitutional rights for defendants, I would never do it because I know what it's like to have to go through that twice. Um, so I, I just, I start there. Um, and then I, I already forgot what the other question was. Well, let me back up. Uh, so I was asking like the, the, I was asking about hurt people hurting Ooh, people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And how, if the, if you, the idea of justice for you is justice makes people whole. And for certain, for some victims, that means one thing. For other victims, it means another thing. Um, like, how does that work in tandem with the hurt person who hurt the person? Because yeah, I think the underlying assumption in there is the person who the the defendant or the criminal also probably has somebody in their life that they need to be made whole by that they're not being attended to and taken care of and they're being not served or absolutely. So, so the, um, this idea of hurt people, hurt people, the, the term of the research is the victim offender overlap. Um, and we know that, that there's all kinds of overlap between whether you're the victim or the offender and what that looks like over time and things like that. So what I love about, justice in in the sense of the work that I do is I really see it as a critical intervention point that Mm -hmm. if the first time you enter the system is as a victim and the system tells you that you matter and the system tells you, I care about you and I care that this happened and I, I want to treat you with respect and dignity. That is a critical intervention point for helping to prevent that victim offender overlap from happening. Mm -hmm. Right. And so to me, that's, you know, the ripple effect that this can have in terms of kind of helping to stop some of that, um, the cycle in that way, I think is really powerful. I bet you that would be true too at any level, right? If it happened at the child abuse level, if it happened at the, you know, um, juvenile offender level, if it happened at just your first offense, like if it mattered that you mattered, like, Hey, yes. what, this wasn't cool. You can't do this. Let's actually treat you like a person and not part of like getting you through the system. Yeah. Well, have you go ahead. The, the thing that I, I said earlier about, you know, when it's, it's not upheld consistently and fairly for everyone. That's, I think, especially important for this idea of, of telling folks that they matter. So if, if you see that somebody else who's experienced the same thing as you, is being treated with respect and dignity, is getting, you know, the chance to be heard and to be present and things like that, and you're not, then it's, it just amplifies that message to them that, you know, I don't matter. And so what does it matter? You know, what I, right. Does that make sense? And so I think in that sense, it kind of perpetuates as well. But I had a student, um, in one of my classes, he was an older gentleman who had spent most of his life incarcerated, um, and got out and, ended up in my class a few years later and, um, his name was Eddie. He passed away, uh, two years ago. And so much of who I am as an educator, I think comes from my interactions with Eddie. But, uh, this lecture that I gave on victim offender overlap, Eddie came to my office and he shut the door and, um, well, he asked if he could shut the door and, uh, and I said, Eddie, what's going on? And he looked at me and just welled up with tears. And he said, 
I always thought I did the things that I did because I was a terrible person. And I understand now that a lot of why I did what I did was because of what happened to me. And he said, it, it, it doesn't give me an excuse for it. It doesn't make me take, you know, any less responsibility for it. He said, but you've given me this gift of being able to start to forgive myself for that. Um, and I think that that's such a powerful, a powerful way of understanding. That's what I mean about being made whole, right? Um, it's just, oh, I learned so much from Eddie, just about self-compassion, about all of it. Well, there's a lot of value in being seen. And I think sometimes we go through life thinking that people don't see us or notice us or give a crap or like ever pay, even pay attention or remember. And the longer I live, the more I go about just living my daily life. I'm starting to see that the smallest things make the biggest difference. Um, what are some of the things that you're noticing in this work, like for you and in your experiences? Being seen and being heard are by far the two most important things that, well, that I see in, in the research, but also um, in my interactions with people. And, and it doesn't, doesn't have to be within the system, right? So even just with the work that I do, when I sit down with, with survivors and hear their story, um, mm -hmm. that's being seen and being heard, right? And for some of those folks, it's the first time that anyone has ever sat down and, and said, I, I care about your story and I want to hear it. Um, but when you go through this kind of stuff, the idea that you can have something good come of it is, is kind of something that just helps with that healing, I think. So turning pain into purpose is, is something I say a lot. Never, ever, ever, just as a caveat for your listeners, never say to a crime victim, well, everything happens for a reason. Someone said that to me once. They were like, wow, look at everything you've done. You know, everything happens. For, and I was like, oh, no, no, mm -mm, mm -mm, nope. Good things can come from bad situations. We can turn pain into purpose. Um, but like my cousin wasn't raped and murdered so that I could be on this podcast, right? Um, so turning pain I hope into not. I really <laughs> that's not a world I, you know. So anyway, so um turning pain into purpose is is part of it. And and I think being seen and being heard are critical components of that. Um, right. and so that this this workshop that I gave uh, at the conference two weeks ago, the survivor stories that I used were stories that that I sat down and heard from victims over the, the last two years. And so before the, I left for the trip, I sent them each a note and said, I just want you to know I'm about to go to this conference and I'm, I'm going to share your story, um, in this training. And so I, I hope, you know, like not only the time that you spent and, you know, the, the faith that you put in me to share your story, that it made a difference here in Kentucky, but I'm going to use it now to train all these people across the country. And the responses that I got were just like, you know, you have no idea that this has made my, my year this, I mean, because people want to believe that the terrible things that they've had to go through, something good can come from it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the very heart of that is being seen and being heard. Yeah. Well, what I hear also in that is that, um, I have this post-it note from a conference I went to a couple of years ago. 
um, where a speaker from South Africa was talking about, uh, it was like a diversity speech, but, or, but she said, keep your power, use your power, share your power. And what I hear and what you're talking about is just another version of that where you're not diminishing yourself, but you are using what you have and sharing what you have for other people. Yeah, absolutely. Elevating other people's voices, I think, is is one of the best things you can do. If you've got the space or the privilege where you're invited to a table or you're given a microphone, um, say what you need to say, say say what someone else can't say, um, and pass the mic, right? Mm-hmm. Make space for, for other folks to do that. So we're going to get into the like questions I ask a lot of people. <laughs> um, you know, everyone comes up against blocks, obstacles, things that make them want to, for me, it's lie on the floor and stare at the ceiling. Other people, it's like curl into a ball. I don't know what your version of it is. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the ways that you get around feeling blocked? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I'd say it probably depends on, on what the block feels like. Sometimes it's, if it's more of a, you know, kind of a logistics or career related or, you know, can't figure out something that's different to me than the days where everything just feels really heavy. Um, and that's a different kind of block for me. Um, Mm -hmm. there are some days where it feels like it doesn't matter how, how much good work we do. Like this is just a terrible world. And, you know, and those kinds of heavy days are different, um, than different blocks for me than others. Um, so I actually started a, I call it my rainy day file and it's, it's an actual like file folder on my desk. Um, and it has cards from students. It has emails from Eddie. Um, Mm. it has, you know, things that people have shared about the impact that our interactions have had on them or the work has had on them or how they feel. Um, and that's, that's what I do when I have those days is just to remember that even, even though each little step feels like sometimes it's not enough, it's, it, it can be enough. Right. And I think reframing that way is helpful, at least for me. Yeah. Well, I do a lot of acknowledgement with my clients. So what I hear in that is like, oh, you just give yourself some acknowledgement. You allow people to acknowledge you and let that seep in. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's, it's about, that's really where I think I get my passionate purpose is from helping other people. And so being reminded that it's working and that, you know, it, it has, it's worth it to keep pushing and, and to keep fighting and to, you know, to get up from laying down on the floor and staring at your ceiling. Um, (laughs) Right. Like that's, it it is, it's the acknowledgement, but um, for me, it's, it's that reminder that they're worth it. It's, it's worth it to do this work because it, it does make a difference. Yeah. Um, what's some advice that you've gotten that is terrible? So the first thing is the path that, that we talked about earlier, right? Mm -hmm. There's a certain path or journey and that staying on the path is, is what's needed. And, um, just throw all of that out the window. Like that's just a bunch of garbage. Um, and so that's definitely, I think my, some of the worst piece of advice, but the other one, and this is something I've been seeing a lot lately is the, 
if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. Right. Have you, it's like, yeah. And, and here's the thing about that. I like that idea in theory because the idea is that you're, you're not saying yes to the things that you should. Right. Um, if it's not a, if it's not like a, yes, I'm all in, then don't do it. Don't spend your time or your resources or, you know, whatever that is. And I like that idea, but what I don't like about it is that I don't think it allows for any kind of fluidity or flexibility because what's mm-hmm. the hell yes today might be a hell no tomorrow. And I think it's okay at that point to then say, nope. Um, and what might've been a hell no last week, maybe in three weeks is going to be a hell yes. And so I think being open to how things shift and, and when they shift and really just kind of being open to change in that way. And, um, kind of being planted in the present moment so that you can, I call it be where your feet are. There was a mentor of mine from undergrad who used to say that. So, you know, being where your feet are in that moment, that hell yes, or could change to a hell no and vice versa. And being open to that, I think is, is important. Well, that hell yes or hell no. I think a lot of people use it in relationships when, at least in my world, it's a very relationshipy advice kind of thing when people are treating you poorly it's a hell no so get the hell out of there but it doesn't allow for the ambivalence that happens in life and it it's a very black and white all or nothing way of being that um we don't get all or nothing we get most of it and we can aim for all or aim for nothing but i think that taken to an extreme it's just trying to simplify life when it's not, mm-hmm. life isn't simple. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we support you? Like what, what states do we need to start calling? <laughs> um, who do we need to get into touch with in Congress? Like what, what's the work that we need I love to do? that. I love that. And I love that that's <laughs> the, the, you know, the solutions here. Um, so certainly, you know, looking into whether or not your state uh, has this and and getting in contact with your legislators is important. But what I would ask of your listeners is um, for them to kind of think about owning what it means to be trauma-informed and victim-centered in their own lives. And so too often, I think people see that as that's someone's job, right? Like I don't do victim work, so I'm not victim-centered or I don't, I don't, you know, I'm a receptionist. And so where does trauma informed, you know, fit in the work I do? Um, and for me being trauma informed and victim centered is it's a perspective. It's a way of life. It's, it's understanding that the person who just walked into your office, um, something awful may have happened to them yesterday. Um, and, and maybe just generally, right. Not even with, not even just with, um, with crime victimization, but in general, uh, I was at, I was at the store when I found out that my, my grandmother passed away and I get up to the checkout line. The lady's like, hi, how's your day? I'm like, it's fine. Right. And she, you know, I was not about to unload on this poor woman, um, at the checkout line, but, but my being short with her or, you know, not being smiley and kind had nothing to do with her and everything to do with me and what I was going through. And so, being kind to people. Actually, my shirt says, uh, a little more kindness, a little less judgment. And that's, mm. that's to me, that's what it means to be victim centered and, and trauma informed. And we can all do that 
in all aspects of our life, no matter whether you work with or interact with crime victims or, or, you know, in any kind of the trauma world, it's basically just like, don't be an asshole. Right. That's what it means to do this. And so, Mm -hmm. um, that'd be my ask. How can we help you specifically? much harder to answer those questions, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Is it? I don't know. I guess so. Um, you know, I don't even, I don't really know how I would, how I would answer that. Think of me in five years when I'm not sure where my, where my career path is going. <laughs> um, you know, you can always give me a call. <laughs> there, you know, we'll go on the road. I, I heard on one of your episodes, you want to go on the road. So, um, you know, it, how, how I can personally be helped connect with me, um, I, I love, I do these kinds of trainings, um, whether it's for, you know, organizations or, uh, companies or, you know, I do some of these trainings for like police departments and things like that. But, um, think of me when, when you've got conversations that come up and you're like, you know, we really could benefit from a training on this. Um, I would love, I'd love to do it. It's one of my favorite things. Are there like, just so that people know, um, what kind of trainings do you offer? Just trauma, trauma informed trainings. What? Yeah. Um, a lot of things I've, I've given, I just had to type this up for my bio for the thing. I've given more than 50 conference presentations and trainings, um, Mm -hmm. on all different kinds of stuff, diversity related inclusion. Um, you know, certainly anything kind of having to do with victims and things like that, trauma informed stuff. Um, Lately, I've been doing a lot more stuff on just kind of like self-empowerment, self-compassion, um, kind of from this from this approach that we talked about in terms of kind of healing and justice and things like that. So um, lots of stuff, really. Cool. I mean, I know people that might need some stuff like that. Great. <laughs> my way. Um, my last question is my favorite question. Um, what does success look like for you? you know, how I would have answered that before this job would have been totally based in that path. Mm -hmm. been based in like when I, when I reach tenure or when I become a full professor, when I have X number of publications, Um, I have tenure, my book is published and And then I'm successful. And they've invited me to a morning show. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, what success looks like for me is, uh, is my rainy day file. That's what it is. It's the, it's, it's that ripple effect. It's the reminder that the work we do makes a difference, even if we're not to where we want to be yet. Um, success isn't in success isn't in the end outcome. It's in the journey, right? Whatever one of those. I'm I'm full of these like inspirational posters today. Welcome um, to my world. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's what I say. It's my rainy day folder. That's awesome. Thank you so much for doing this show. It was so great to talk with you i learned so much about the work that you do and um also just living and working from a place of compassion that's one of the biggest things that i took away from talking to you today thank you thank you for having me This Is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit erinconlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio. 